Hey folks, this is Kevin. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month this year, we're rerunning some of our favorite risk stories shared by storytellers of Hispanic heritage. And we're so excited to have guest hosts stepping in to share this experience with us. This week, we're welcoming Joanna Hausman from the podcast Hyphenated, a podcast she co-hosts with Jenny Lorenzo about living a hyphenated experience as Hispanic Americans. So now, without further ado, here's Joanna. Hey, everyone. This is Joanna Hausman. I'm a Venezuelan comedian, TV writer, actor, and story addict. I'm absolutely addicted to storytelling, so I'm super excited to be joining the Risk family for this episode. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Margarita Franco. Chabela had her own special greeting for me. Hey, puta. Yeah, you little puta with your dog shaking your ass. That and more. But first, if you're new to the Risk podcast, there's 14 years worth of episodes and lots more series like this Hispanic Live series. Check out the best of Risk episodes or the Scary Stories episodes or the Funny Stuff episodes. There's so many episodes, guys. They're all at risk-show.com slash special series. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. Time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. 
each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now here's the show. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they thought they'd never dare to share. I'm Joanna, and this is Rawayana behind me now, one of my favorite bands. And this is Hispanic Lives number two, the second of four episodes that Risk is running during National Hispanic Heritage Month. Highlighting storytellers with stories that are unique to the experience of being Hispanic in the first place. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Maribel Hernández Rivera and Frank Trainer. But first, a story by Margarita Franco that was told almost exactly one year ago at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. Margarita is a storyteller, writer, and actor. She's guest starred on several TV shows and films like Never Have I Ever, 911 Lone Star, What If, Malcolm in the Middle. I mean, the list goes on and on. She left home when she was just 15, and where some might say they never look back, Margarita looked back and wrote down every single crazy story that happened, and then she shared them with us. Here's Margarita Franco with a story we call The Queen of Poco Way. Pokaway is a street on the east side of San Jose. And in the 70s, it was considered one of the most dangerous places to live. Now, luckily, we didn't know that when we moved there. It was just where the welfare office sent us. We included my mom, my dad, my five brothers, and our boxer dog, Duke. We had moved from a, a middle-class suburb in uh, Orlando, Florida, really because we ran out of money. You know, my dad was having a hard time keeping work. My mom was dating a lot. And um, we were struggling in school. And um, frankly, Florida doesn't have a lot of love towards Mexicans, at least not in the 70s. And um, we just weren't feeling it. So anyway, fast forward, we're cruising down Pokeway in our 1966 Dodge Charger painted a periwinkle hue. And we're all stuffed in there. We've got our little U-Haul attached to it behind us with all our belongings. And we pull up Pokeway, and Pokeway is low-income apartments, Section 8 apartments, 
some of the windows are broken. They're covered with plywood and cardboard. And we see all these guys on the street, right? And they're like hovering under the popped hoods of cars. And, and there's tools all over the street or the sidewalk. And I remember thinking as I looked out the window, like, why would they even work on these dumpy cars? And now I realize those cars were badass. They were 1964 Chevy Impalas, Eldorados, Cutlass Supremes, a couple of Toyota pickup trucks in there, a 1966 Ford Falcon. These guys were just cheering them out, man. And I didn't know because I was a kid, right? So anyway, we pull out. My brothers and I spill out onto the sidewalk, and we're wearing our Orlando, Florida beach attire. You know, puka shells, Hawaiian shirts, bell bottoms. And all these guys stop working on their cars, and they're just looking at us. And we're looking at them, too. And they're like, they're wearing like white tank tops, you know, and they're all tatted up with these bulging triceps, and they've got like cut-off khakis, and they're staring at us, and we're staring at them. And I'm not going to lie, we looked like the Mexican Brady Bunch. <laughs> but they looked foreign to us, too, because even though we were Mexican-American, we didn't know very much about our culture, right? It was the 70s, and we just didn't know. We had never seen Chicanos before. We just didn't know. So they're looking at us, and we're looking at them, and it's kind of like, do you look familiar? But not really, but kind of. And then this turns into sort of a tension, right? And then sort of gravitates to like this primal standoff. And my mom senses the fear in us, and she's unloading the um, U-Haul, and she's got all these hangers in her hands, and she comes over and she plants herself in between these guys and us. And she's got these hangers, and she starts yelling in Spanish, and she's saying stuff, and it looks like she has nunchucks, but they're just hangers. <laughs> these guys, they're all like looking at her, and then they start to scatter. And, and then they're saying, like, mira que loca la lady, no, you know, voy a meter con eso. I'm not going to mess with her, man, she's crazy. And so they scatter off and go back to working on their cars. And, you know, I just rolled my eyes because I, I, I didn't care what my mother did. I hated my mother. I was 12 years old going on 16. I was rebelling hard. You know, I was mad that we were moving all the time. I was mad that she was dating all the time. And... In her defense, though, she had had a rough life, right? She, she was from Mexico. She was left in an orphanage while my abuelita, my grandma, came across the border, and then my grandma went back to get her and brought over with my uncle. So she was tough. And at five feet, two inches, she exuded this, how shall I say, like, this batshit crazy lady aura <laughs> that scared even the scariest people. And Poco Way was scary, you know? It was kind of scary. I mean, we were living in a gang neighborhood. And um, so anyway, I would walk Duke every day, our boxer, right? Because I was kind of freaked out. And I would just take him with me. And I thought that he would protect me because he had this barrel chest and smashed in nose. And, and <laughs> I just thought he, you know, looked tough. But really, the only protection he offered was drool. <laughs> That's it. So... Um, Every day there was this girl who stood across the street and she was older than me and she wore these tiny little cut off shorts and a tube top and she stood out there every day 
I gathered that her name was Chavela because these guys would pull up in their cars and they'd slow down and they'd go, Orale, Chavela, que pasa? And then she would give them the middle finger. <clears throat> I would have been really happy to receive the middle finger from Chavela, but Chavela had her own special greeting for me. Hey, puta. Yeah, you little puta with your dog shaking your ass, huh? Think you're hot shit, don't you, little puta? And I was like, oh my God. How old is she? She looks 25, I'm 12, okay? And so I put my head down and I just keep walking with Duke, like just drool along, Duke, come on. And I'm walking back and I think, I, I, every time I see her, I swear I'm sweating through my clothes because I'm just dreading walking on Poco Way. And so I go back to the, the back courtyard, which is where we have our apartment, and this neighbor comes up to me, this lady, and she says, um, why does Chavela hate you so much? And before I can say anything, my mom sticks her head out our apartment door and says, what? Who hates who? What are you talking about? And then the lady goes into, yeah, the neighbor, the Chavela, she hates Marchi. Yeah, she's always telling her to, to pull her pants up or put her pants on algo así, I don't know. And then she hates Duke, too. She doesn't like Duke. And she's always telling her that she's a little puta. And so my mom is like staring at her and then looking at me to confirm. And then I see that batshit crazy look, right? It's, it's coming. <laughs> And my mom shakes her head and she's like, no, 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 not my daughter. And she starts marching through the courtyard and this muttering turns into a crescendo and she's saying in Spanish, no, senor, no vas a hacer eso a mi niña, to my daughter, you're not going to do that. And all the neighbors now hear the commotion and they're now standing on their porches to see what's going on and the upstairs neighbors are opening their windows and they're sticking their heads out and my mom is marching over there and then I hear somebody say, get her, Mrs. Blanco! <laughs> We've only lived here a week. How do they know? How do they know her name? And, and so my mom goes right up to the end of the curb on our side of Hokoway, and she puts her hands on her hips and she goes, hey. She gives her like that Danny Trejo stare, right? And she's like, hey, puta, with the little tube top and your ass hanging out. And Chavela, you know, she saw my mom coming. She just looked a little surprised, like, who the fuck is this crazy lady? But she was, she was caught off guard, and she sees my mom, and she stares at her, and then she goes, she gives her the middle finger, and my mom just charges across the street and grabs Chavela by the neck and pulls her face up to her own, and she goes, in Spanglish, she says, you have a problem con mi niña with my daughter, huh? She's 12. How old are you? What are you doing picking on a kid, huh? And Chavela, she's trying to struggle free from my mom. And oh, now all the neighbors are yelling and they're screaming like, hit her! And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? And I'm thinking, stop, stop, please do not hit my mother, please. And, and I can't believe that my mom is actually fighting for me either. And, and so Chavela is like trying to, to break free from my mom's clutches, but my mom has like a vice grip on her. And then Chavela is still trying to, to break free and she says she just walks around here with that stupid dog shaking her ass and my mom headlocks her like really professional and I'm like <laughs> and the neighbors are going wild at the headlock move because it's like now it's an MMA event right <laughs> so 
Chavel is still trying to break free, but my mom's really got her good, because she's good, my mom. And, and then all of a sudden, I see in Chavela like all the bravado draining from her face, and her body goes kind of limp, and, and then Chavela, she does the most baffling thing. She starts to cry, and she says to my mother, loud enough for all of us to hear, she says, I got nobody, man. I'm out here alone, and I hate myself, okay? And my mom lets her go, and all the neighbors are quiet, and my mom is looking at her, and, and for just a second, I feel like my mom is looking at her like she recognizes that feeling, and my mom has a little bit of tenderness toward her. And I'm still across the street going like, what is going on here? And Chavela is quietly crying, and my mom puts her hand up, and Chavela like puts her hand up because she thinks my mom's going to hit her. And she's still sobbing and wiping snot from her nose, and then my mom goes to hug her, and my mom says, Ijita, you're not ugly, baby. You're beautiful. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And Chavela sobs and just falls into my mom's arms, and my mom is rocking her and stroking her hair, and the neighbors are all clapping. <laughs> and the neighbors are crying, and I'm just standing there going, what is going on? And then my mom, she lets her go, and she gives Chavela a reassuring look, you know, like, you're going to be okay. And then my mom turns around, and she sees all the neighbors watching, and she loves it. <laughs> she loves this minute. She's on stage, and she's eating it up, and she walks across the street really daintily, and she's like waving to everybody. And she can't believe this is all happening because of her. And as she walks past me, she slows down, and she says, she won't bug you anymore. And she doesn't, ever. I'll never forget that day because it was the first time I felt important to my mother. And I felt like, I don't know, I just, I didn't think she would ever fight for me like that. We only stayed on Pokeway for like eight more months, but for eight months, man, we had major street cred. <laughs> Nobody was going to mess with us. My mom owned that street. She was the queen of Pocoway. And that's for you, Mom. I love you. Te quiero mucho. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. So my dad and I have a lot in common. He and I both have black curly hair. He and I both love to dance. He met my mom dancing. And decades later, I met my husband dancing. We both are very strict about punctuality. Uh, his favorite phrase is, el que se quedó, se quedó. <laughs> so whoever's left behind is left behind. Um, but there's one big thing we don't have in common. And that is that I was able to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. And he lived his life undocumented. So my new American story begins when my dad decided to come to the United States. I was about nine years old. I remember that the day he left, he woke me up in the middle of the night. He kissed me and he said goodbye. I opened up my eyes, everything was dark, and then he was gone. I knew he was leaving to the US because days earlier, we had traveled for about 12 hours by bus from Mexico City south to Poza Rica, Veracruz, where my dad was from. And we traveled there looking for a group of people who were going north. On those days when we went and traveled to those places, I remember going to so-and-so's house. I had never met those people. And we walked their roads. When we got to the destination, my mom and my dad would go inside of the house. They would close the door. They would close the shades while my two brothers and I stayed outside. We sit outside under the sun in the patio watching the chickens run around. Now I gather that the people we were visiting were coyotes, people smugglers. And I gather that the conversations that were had inside that house were about money, they were about logistics, and they were about the perils that my dad would face, which now I know were many. He used to tell me the story about crossing the desert. And this one time he was crossing the desert and then he had to jump into a hole. Now in this hole there were cacti and he was stung by the cacti, but he had to remain quiet and remain still. Because La Migra was roaming around immigration officers. They were looking for the undocumented and he did not want to be caught. So I remember that story and I remember growing up as a child in Mexico City, longing for my father. The last few years of elementary school, I just wish I could be with my dad. And I couldn't because he was in the United States. And we couldn't speak by phone because we didn't have a phone in our house. My grandmother did, but she lived a few hours away. Uh, so we couldn't do it often. But I remember the first time we came to visit my dad in the US. And that was a great time. My mom and my older brother were able to get a passport and a visa. My younger brother and I 
we couldn't. But that was okay. What my dad did is he arranged for a border mom to come pick us up on the other side of the U.S.-Mexico border. So this border mom came, met us in Matamoros at a hotel. She came with a guy, with a man. When I saw the man come in the hotel, I thought it was my dad. So I ran to my dad and I gave him a hug, soon to learn that that wasn't my dad. That man was there to let my younger brother and I know that to cross the border, we were gonna pass as our border mom's children. So of course I was embarrassed. I was ashamed not to even remember what my dad looked like. It had been four years since I had last seen my dad. He left when I was around nine, and now I was around 12 or 13. So we go, we try to cross the border, it's July 4th. My mom had decided, you cross on July 4th because the border patrol are not paying attention. They are busy with the fireworks, and they won't be asking you many questions. So we go to the border, and at the border, there's different lines for people who are not nationals and for people who are either residents or citizens of the United States. So my mom and my older brother go to one line, and I start walking behind them because I have forgotten what I had been told in the hotel in Matamoros. All of a sudden, I stopped when my mom turned around and with her glance reminded me that at the border, she and I were not related. That at the border, she did not know me. So at that moment, my eyes watered. Luckily, my younger brother took me by the hand and we started following my border mom. Luckily enough, we crossed the border, no trouble. Then once we crossed on the other side of the border, we got on the bus that would take us to Houston, Texas, where my dad lived. So the first time we came to the US, I still remember how exciting it was. I remember we all slept on the floor in the little room where my dad lived. But even despite the tight quarters, it was the first time we went to a Chinese buffet. <laughs> it was the first time we went to NASA. And it was the first time that we as a family went to the beach. I really, really had hoped that we were gonna stay with my dad. But after the period of authorized state for my mom and brother had expired, my parents decided that we needed to go back. They explained that being undocumented in the US was dangerous. My dad's biggest fear, you know, if we stayed, we would join a gang because some of his coworkers' children had joined gangs. So for him, that's what would happen to us. And so he said, you guys are safer in Mexico with me sending you back money. So we went back. But happily, we came back a couple of times. And every time we came back, I begged. I told my parents, can I please, please stay with my dad? And it finally worked. Uh, after much deliberation between my mom and my dad, my mom and my dad finally agreed under the condition that I stay with my younger brother. So we stayed. My mom and my older brother went back to Mexico. In the US, my dad's job was to be a warehouseman. As a warehouseman, he didn't have a set schedule. So we never knew when he would come out of work or not. But what we knew is that as soon as he got out of work, he would get into that car 
and his car was not air-conditioned. You couldn't even bring down the windows. But he would get into his car and can't find my younger brother and me, whatever it is that we were. And often that meant that it was halfway between home and school. Our school was about two miles away from our house, and we had to walk, whether it was cold, whether it was rainy, whether it was hot, we just had to walk. So seeing my dad appear out of nowhere, even if he was sweaty, even if he had his uniform that was all dirty, even if his car was falling apart, it was just beautiful to see my dad appear out of nowhere. That was the highlight of my day. And then when we got home, my dad would help me do my homework. My dad, like me, didn't speak any English, but he would help me find all the words in our Spanish-English dictionary so that I would be able to do my work. And one time I remember being in middle school, and it was the first history fair I had ever participated in. I had no idea what that was. And so I was told I had to put together a poster board, and the poster board had to have some you know, graphics and all that. So I told my dad, and I said, well, I want to write about Gandhi, and I'll write. But I'm like, I wasn't, I'm not an artist. I wasn't an artist. I didn't know what to do. My dad said, don't worry. I have it under control. He pulled an all-nighter drawing Gandhi's picture. And that picture was in the middle of my poster board. And he and I won a prize for my history fair. <laughs> so my dad not only helped me when I was in middle school, he supported me every single step of the way, even if he didn't quite understand my dreams because our life experience was so different. He supported me when I decided to go to Mozambique and work there for a year. And he and the whole family came to drop me off at the airport. And when they dropped me off at the airport, I remember going up and seeing my dad and just having second thoughts. Do I do this? Do I not do this? Looking at my dad's big, big smile just gave me the assurance that I had to do it. So when I went to Mozambique, I was 25 years old. It was June 26, 2016. Soon after I left for Mozambique, my younger brother got deployed to Japan with the US Navy. My dad was so proud that he drove my brother from Texas to Virginia to see him off. About a month after my brother was deployed to Japan, on October 18, 2015, I got a phone call at 5 a.m. Mozambique time. Now, I thought it was my dad going to wish me happy birthday because my birthday had been two days before. And I was ready to scold him and say, Dad, how dare you call me two days after my birthday? But it wasn't my dad. The person on the other side was my older brother. And his question was, have you heard from Dad? When he asked that question, I felt a big hole in my stomach. I said, no. And he said, okay. I want you to remain calm, but it appears as if dad was in a car accident. So I stood up from bed and I kept listening. And he said, and we don't really know, but what we know is that this past weekend, he was supposed to drive down from Virginia to Texas. And he had committed to do a handyman's job and he had hired a young man to help him. So when my dad didn't show up, 
the young man called up my dad, and the person who picked up on the other side was the owner of a junkyard in Manning, South Carolina. And the owner of the junkyard said to the young man, the driver of this car was killed in a car accident. So the young man called my dad's wife, who then called my older brother, who then called me. My brother then said, but we're still hopeful. And the reason why we're hopeful that maybe that is okay is because the authorities haven't called us. So maybe his car was in an accident, but maybe he wasn't. So please, please stay calm. And I said, okay. My older brother immediately flew to South Carolina to see what was happening. I went from Mozambique back home. My younger brother went from Japan back home. When my older brother got to Manning, South Carolina, and spoke to the police officers in Manning, South Carolina, the first thing he was told was, no habla espanol. And that's despite the fact that my older brother speaks English perfectly, despite the fact that my older brother's wife is Caucasian and she was with him. So then my brother requested my dad's belongings and the officers refused to turn over my dad's driver's license. And then my brother asked for the contact information for the other people who had been involved in the head-on coalition because that, those other people had survived and they were unharmed. So we wanted to know what had happened, but the officers refused to give that information. When my older brother went from the police station to the morgue to recognize my dad's body, he was followed. We felt powerless. We felt unwanted. We kept wondering, how can it be that nobody called the family to let them know what had happened? How can it be that the Manning Police Department, that the coroner's office, that the highway patrol, nobody, did anything to just pick up that cell phone and dial the last number, which in fact was my older brother's last number. How can it be that these people are treating my brother the way they're treating him? Is it because they felt that my dad was just another undocumented immigrant who had no family in the United States and whose family would never know what happened to him? We will never know. Now I have to tell you that Throughout my whole time in the United States, what I wanted the most was to help my dad go from undocumented to documented. And I hoped that by my going to fancy schools, by my brother going to the Navy, we were gonna be able to do something about it. But we weren't. My dad died before we could do anything about it. Now, my dad used to have a phrase and he used to say, things happen for a reason. There's always a reason why things happen. And so to try to understand why this happened, and I still don't know why, but I tell myself, well, this happened to inform the work that I do. I now work at the mayor's office of immigrant affairs. My job is to think of programs, to think of ways to help immigrants in New York City to better their life. Now, I wish I could have done that for my dad, 
and I can't. But I know that I can do it for other people. And when I think of my dad and I think of his favorite phrase, el que se quedó, se quedó, I think, okay, dad, you're gone. Y yo me quedé. I'm left behind. But I'm not left behind with no purpose. I am left behind with the purpose of helping other people who could be helped, who don't have all the benefits of having all these resources. So I couldn't help you, dad, but I'm going to help others. Thank you. I'm the youngest of seven children my parents had, and I was born 11 years after the sixth one, which makes some people think that I'm an accident, you know? But I'm not, you know? I, 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 was, I was planned, you know? I was born because my mom was bored. In fact, her entire life, my mom made it very clear that, that I was planned, but only by her. My dad just thought he was getting lucky one summer night, and that's how I came to be in this world. But that also means that uh, most of my siblings are old enough you know, to be my parents. And uh, growing up, that made me feel like I wasn't really part of my family, like I wasn't one of the siblings, like I was just one kid that lived with them. And in fact, for example, my brother Ignacio, who is much, much older than me, um, and he's also a macho wacho karate sensei who kills you five times before you touch the floor. When I was very, very young, he would always tease me saying things like, mom never told you, but you're adopted. <laughs> Which I you know is a thing that a lot of older brothers say, but when your older brother is basically an adult and you're five, it sounds way, way more believable. But I do live with the hope that someday my brother Ignacio is going to be a, an 85-year-old senile man just lying in some hospital bed really weak. And he will need me to change, I don't know, his adult diapers, for example. And I will do it, but every time I do it, I will lean in and have my revenge saying, Mom never told you, but you are adopted. <laughs> in 2003, my father died and uh, that was a really you know hard thing for all of us we're a very patriarchal family he was a leader and we were you know headless and uh, it was particularly hard for me being so so young at the time I was 21 and that caused me to completely shut down and I, I just sort of stopped showing any real feelings and emotions and that's why many years later when my sister tells me that my mom has only six weeks left to live I don't cry at all. You know, uh, my dad's death basically turned me into a man, and that's what a man does. A man doesn't show any feelings, any emotions. He's always in control. Everything is always okay. You have all the answers. I'm a man. And that's why, you know, when my sister told me that, I just don't cry. It was on April 1st, 2009, and that day Argentina had lost 6-1 to one to Bolivia in some soccer game, and that's all everyone can talk about. I was like, hey, mom, what a terrible day, right, mom? And, uh, you know, I just, you know, joking is all I could do. Not crying, just hiding behind the jokes, because I'm a man. I just hug my sister while she cries, and then once she's done, I walk out on the street, and I call my girlfriend to tell her the news. My girlfriend and I don't have the best relationship for the past, 
year and a half, we just keep breaking up and getting back together again. We're like the, like this much more toxic version of Ross and Rachel and friends, you know, that's so us, so, so us. But if there's something good to come out of that relationship is that my girlfriend helped me get closer to my mom, you know what I mean? Um, and that's pretty good. So I go out and I just call her that day. A couple of days before meeting, I met with my, my girlfriend and I, I tell her, you know, there's something wrong with my mom and we don't know what it is. And she tells me, well, I want to be with you because I love you through this, so don't worry about it. But today, today when I call her, she sounds different. She's like, um, well, this is one of those things where nobody can do anything for you uh, and you just have to face it on your own. And I'm like, well, um, I'm actually pretty sure that this is one of those cases where it's okay if you get the help and the support of those that love you. I mean, I'm not used to having your mom die. You know what I mean? This is actually my first time going through this once in a lifetime event, but I'm pretty sure this is one of those where it's okay, you know, if you get some support from the people that love you. I don't know, you tell me what you think. And of course, we break up again because, you know, that's so us. <laughs> I guess, you know, maybe she changed her mind because the night after I told her that something was kind of wrong with my mom and she told me, I love you and I'll be with you through this, I was at a bar near her house uh, with my friends and through the bar window I see this ugly little red car driving by really slowly and in the driver's seat I see this ugly man and in the passenger seat I see my girlfriend and immediately my heart just stops, but it starts beating really fast at the same time. I feel this mix of fear, anger, and shame that makes me think, hey, this is probably what Bruce Banner feels before turning into the Hulk. <laughs> so I excuse myself from my friends and I just run through the car and I find them a couple of blocks afterwards and I pull over the way that you find young lovers in a car, of course, and I, I slowly approach her, you know, her window and I, you know, I knock on the window and I go, hey, uh, have you told him that you love him and you want to be with him like you told me like yesterday? <laughs> and then she gets out of the car and we start screaming at each other and then she gets back in the car and they drive away and I'm just left there because that's, that's so us. <laughs> so us. A couple of days after, you know, my mom was diagnosed, having only six weeks left to live, she leaves the hospital and she moves in with one of my sisters because basically my sister has a, a big family and a big apartment and uh, there's a lot of space for everyone to hang out with my mom as, as much as we need and like she will never be alone in her last six weeks and it's pretty good. And uh, a couple of days after she's settled, we meet with the doctors again and they tell us, you know, in this month and a half that she has left to live. We have to give her the best quality of life possible. And then one of my sisters who cannot take it anymore just goes, a month and a half, six weeks? Can't you make up your mind about how much time she has left? <laughs> my sister's having a really hard time and I, I, I don't blame her. Uh, but unlike her, I'm not showing any real feelings. I just hide, hide behind the jokes and I find the funny in everything, like my sister not knowing how a calendar works. And I laugh about it, you know. My mom's six weeks, you know, go by pretty well, and we all, you know, take time to spend as much time as we can with her. In my case, I'm a musician, so uh, I'm with my band. We just released our second album, and we're supposed to be playing a lot, but we take time off so I can be with my mom. And uh, I, I do a lot of things with my mom. For example, one night I, I get her drunk on her favorite thing, which is red wine, and I ask her to teach me how to make shepherd's pie because she makes a mean shepherd's pie. She puts meringue on top, and she grates that. You should try that. And my sister's just 
freak out. She goes like, what are you doing? Then get her drunk. And I'm like, what is the worst thing that you think could happen to her right now? You know what I mean? Getting my mom drunk is fun, so I'm still not crying. I'm having a great time with that. And then one day towards the end of the six weeks, my girlfriend calls me out of the blue and she tells me that she realized how wrong she was and she apologizes and she asks, you know, to get back together, to which I very calmly answer, oh my God, please take me back. I love you so much. I need you so much. Oh my God, I'm desperate. Please thank you so much. Yeah, I forgive you. I don't know, whatever you want. And we're back together again. That's so us, right? <laughs> and then on Saturday, May 9th, 2009, precisely six weeks after she was diagnosed, because my mom was a very polite and punctual woman, my mother slowly starts to go. And uh, it's actually a pretty beautiful moment because, you know, all her children and her grandchildren gather around her bed. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen someone dying like that. Basically, what happens is that, you know, your body slowly starts to shut off and eventually you start having apneas. That means that every breath you take is deeper and exponentially farther from the one before to the point where you don't know which one is going to be the last one. Basically what my mom is doing in her dying bed is And in one of those, you know, apneas keep going and it's so tense that, that everyone in that room suddenly, you know, goes quiet and the only thing you can hear is my mom, you know, <gasps> every couple of minutes. And, uh, you know, we have to break that tension because my mom might be going, but we all need to come back. I need to come back because I'm not going to cry. Not now. I've been holding it in for so long. I got to do this and my family needs some comedic relief right now. So after a while, I just look at my mom and I go, you fucking tease die already everyone in that room laughs so hard so hard finally me hiding my feelings is doing some good for once a little later after one of those apneas that is longer than the rest one of my sisters decides that's it that's the last one and when my mom goes my sister throws herself on my mom and just goes, that's it, it's the last one, oh my God, she's dead, oh my God, that's it, that was the last one, oh my God, she's dead. And my mom goes, oh, and she's back. And my sister's like, oh, oh I'm, so, I'm so sorry, that's, that's so confusing, I'm so, so, so sorry. <laughs> my mom eventually later that night did die and my sister didn't notice it, but everyone else did and uh, they all started crying right away, but... Uh, but I don't, I, I, by now I have trained myself really well that every time that I feel this need to cry, you know, I just hold my breath a little bit and I, I swallow like when you're swallowing something really big and then I feel this pressure on my chest like it's about to blow up and then it just goes away and I'm back with the silly jokes all the time, all the time. My mom wakes, uh, begins the next morning as it is Argentinian's tradition and uh, before we know it, my mom is already all made up in, in a coffin. The only problem is that one of the legs of the stand where the coffin is, is a little shorter than the other three, and that causes the coffin to wiggle a little bit, which also causes my mom's head to move <laughs> side to side, 
And then I just stand next to my mom and my friend Matias, who's one of my best friends. He's like my brother and he grew up with me and my mom knows him so, so well. And he announced us that he's getting married very recently and my mom never got to find out. And, and he approaches my mom and I approach from the other side and I just go, mom, mom, can you believe it? Matias told us he's getting married. And as Matias looks at my mom with sadness and love in his eyes, I just put my hand on the coffin. <laughs> And I start gently moving it. And like even Trilogues, I just start going, no, don't do it, marriage is a mistake, don't get married, oh my God, don't do it. I find it hilarious. Nobody else does that day. You know what I mean? I just then spend the rest of the week next to my mom, and every time somebody approaches, I just find a, something, you know, weird to tell my mom about them that would cause my mom to say no, and I just move the coffin. And for example, my friend Beto comes and like, Beto ate all the empanadas of my family in the kitchen. And I go, mom, can you believe this? Beto ate all the empanadas. And I move the coffin and I go, no, Beto, how can you do that? It's so rude, don't eat the empanadas, they're not part of the family. Again, I find it hilarious. Nobody else that day does, but, but again, they're crying. What do they know? Laughing is so much better, right? I'm a man. That's what a man does. On Monday, my mom is cremated, and, and then, you know, by Tuesday, I'm back in, in the studio playing with my band and rehearsing, and I'm like, it's time to go back to my normal life. This is over. I'm moving on. And then a couple of songs after we started rehearsing, I start feeling this bubble in my throat and it's changing my voice. I'm the singer and I'm supposed to sound like, I keep thinking I am gonna see you like a rocker, but instead I sound like this, I keep thinking I am gonna see you, which sounds like Aving and the Chipmunks are playing a tribute to my band, which would be a dream come true, but it's not the case. <laughs> Which is, you know, we just stop playing and we're like, what is going on with you? I'm like, I don't know, guys. I feel like this bubble in my throat is changing my voice. I don't know what to do. But we just keep playing because we're men and we're rock stars. Nothing is never wrong. So we keep playing. And after four songs, I feel like all this pain on my chest and on my back and this bubble in my throat changing my voice. So we stop playing and the drummer takes me to the hospital where I find out that I'm having an emphysema. And I have to stay in the hospital for 48 hours. And for no reason whatsoever, I'm supposed to talk in those 48 hours. And they give me a notepad and a pen to communicate. The next morning, I just, you know, from the hospital bed, I just text my six siblings. Hey, uh, remember how mom died, like, literally the other day? <laughs> well, guess who's in the hospital now having an emphysema in the ICU? <laughs> One of my sisters rushes to the hospital, and she's there while I'm talking to the doctor. And the doctor goes, well, cases like these in young, healthy people like you usually happen, you know, they're psychosomatic and they happen when you've been, you know, just repressing a lot of feelings and, and a lot of stress. And so have you, you know, been under any stress lately? And I write on the notepad, yes. And before I'm done, my sister goes, yes, oh, mom just died and he never cried. And then the doctor is like, and do you smoke? And again, I write yes. And I know that I could just, could I just circle the first yes, but I'm dumb like that. I just write yes a second time. And again, before I'm done, my sister goes, yes, and not just cigarettes. He smokes marijuana too. And then the doctor gives her this, I don't really care, lady, look. But she never sees it because she's just looking at me, rejoicing herself, telling me with her eyes, see, I just told the doctor you do drugs. <laughs> Later that day, my, my girlfriend comes to the hospital and I just write on the notepad, I need you. And right below she writes, I love you and I'm gonna be here for you forever. 
And on Thursday, I leave the hospital, and I'm supposed to meet my girlfriend in my apartment, but she never shows up. She just texts me, I can't go, I'm sorry, it's over. And we break up again. But this time we break up for good. And that's so not us, that's absolutely not us. But this is it, you know, it's time now for me to move on with my life and keep going. But then on Sunday, I wake up to a phone call from my brother, Ignacio, the macho wacho karate sensei who kills you five times before you touch the floor. And he's a very athletic man, he doesn't do any drugs, he doesn't drink, he's, you know, but, but he sounds strange on the phone. He's like, hey man, can you get me some blow? And I'm like, blow? What is this, the 80s? What do you want? And he's like, can you get me some, do you even know what blow is? Yeah, marijuana. <laughs> I'm like, no, you idiot, what do you want? He's like, can you get me some marijuana? Please get me some marijuana. I'm like, confused about it. So I hung up and I called one of my friends who knows him really well. And I'm like, yeah, he told him what's happening. And he's like, well, he either maybe just tried to kill himself or he just became the coolest brother he could have. So I don't know. So just in case I roll a joint and I go to my brother's place and I find that in fact, he had taken a lot of pills to kill himself. And uh, I don't have a car, so I call one of my sisters who lives nearby to come with her car. We just throw him in the back seat, uh, uh, you know, however we can. And then my sister drives at full speed in the heavy traffic of Buenos Aires to the hospital, never looking at the road, always looking at the back seat at my brother yelling, Pelotudo, ¿cómo nos haces esto ahora? How could you do this to us right now? When we make it to the hospital, they take my brother away and they pump his stomach and they save his life. And, and then once, once they're done, they, they allow me to go and see him. And I, I just find my brother Ignacio just very weak, lying in hospital bed. And, and this is finally my chance to you know, lean in and, and go, mom never told you, <laughs> but you're adopted. But I don't do it. I, I don't because my, my brother needs me right now and I'm here for him. And, uh, and maybe it took my mom's death for me to finally find my place in my family. And that's all that I need right now. So I just go home and I don't cry again. I don't. I never did, actually. Time went by and I never cried. Years went by and I never cried. I eventually met this wonderful woman, Martina, who soon after became my wife and we moved to the United States where we had our two children, Matilde, who is six, and Oliver, who is two. And, and I've, I've made sure that they know about my mom and I show them photos of her and uh, you know, I tell them about her. And then when Matilde was old enough, I explained to her that, that, that my mom you know, had died. And even though I'm an atheist, I told her that she went to heaven because telling her that we burn her body to ashes and then we put those ashes in a box with the ashes of more dead people and we put that box in her church like a Frankenstein of ash. It's not a very kid-friendly story, you know what I mean? And then, you know, when Matilde was four, during dinner, my wife and I told her that we're going to go to Argentina very soon so she can meet everyone and see where her family is from. And Matilde was very excited. And once I'm done telling her, she goes, Dad, when we go to Argentina, I want to meet your mom. And then it hits me. I thought I had enough. You know what I mean? I thought I was very open to my daughter about my mom and, and what happened to her, but I clearly haven't done enough to the point where... You know, she doesn't even know that her grandmother is dead and she is dying to meet her. And then it hits me. It hits me the way that it does when you'll be holding something inside for over a decade and, and I can't breathe and, 
I can't talk, but I finally cry. And I cry bad, I cry really loud, and I keep, I'm just crying so much. And, because it's not funny anymore. It's not funny anymore when I realize that my mom will never get to meet her favorite grandchildren, you know? It's not funny anymore when I realize that the kind of man that I want to be for my children is the kind of man that feels and lives through all his emotions and know that it's okay to not be okay all the time. Know that it's okay to not be in control all the time, to not have all the answers, you know? To be a real man, at least, for six weeks or a month and a half. <laughs> and that's so me now. Thank you so much. is Risk, and this is the legendary Oscar de Leon behind me right now, singing about how we should all cry for him. And maybe, just maybe, Frank Trainer should have listened to this song, would have saved him a lot of grief and therapy. Frank hosts his own podcast and live storytelling show in Santa Monica called It's Funny Now. You can find out more at itsfunnynowstorytelling.com. And speaking of crying, Maribel Hernandez Rivera's story for my father made me literally ugly cry on my jog the other day. People stared at me. I don't want to talk about it. So I'm talking about it on a podcast. But before both of those, the first story we heard was from Margarita Franco. And let me tell you, me and Margarita have a lot in common because my mom has gotten into an embarrassing amount of fights because of me. She is not allowed in a lot of hospitals in Boston. Maybe one day we'll talk about it. But you can find Margarita on Instagram at Mas Margarita Franco. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back. All right, everybody, come back on October 5th when Manolo Matos from the Cucubano podcast will host Hispanic Lives number three with three more amazing, great stories by Hispanic storytellers pulled from the Risk archives. You might like him more than me, and I hope that doesn't happen, but I can't change your feelings. That's two weeks from now. For now, today's the day. Take a risk. Take a risk. 